Welcome to Mortification of Spin, a casual conversation about things that count. With Carl Truman, Todd Pruitt, and Amy Bird. Mortification of Spin is a weekly podcast from the Alliance of Confessing Evangelicals. This week, we are rejoining the gang at the preaching conference with Dr. Kent Hughes, and this time they'll be answering questions submitted by the audience. Keep listening after the conversation to find out how you can enter to win the Mortification of Spin Season 2 Anthology. get into some of these submitted questions and this is for all of you I guess Um, have I always to preach about Jesus Christ the center of the Bible even if I'm preaching about Proverbs is a sermon without Jesus Christ a bad one well I'll start out but I'm sure these guys could fill in the lines as well as me Uh, if you preach Proverbs and you don't reference Jesus, who is the apotheosis of all wisdom, I think you're making a huge mistake. And if you're preaching it, say, as a Jew would preach it, with no understanding, you know, it, this, uh, of, of who Jesus is and not reading, reading your Bible backwards, you're making a huge mistake. I don't, I, I don't think that when, if, you're, if you think, well, I've... I've got to make a, a gospel sermon out of this. It's got to have gospel symmetries. No. But it does need to reference or even land on Jesus. That's, that's my opinion. I would agree. Yeah. I, I, and to, to reference uh, Edmund Clowney, you don't want to preach synagogue sermons in, in the Church of Jesus. Mm-hmm. So you, you have to get to Christ. Yeah. I'm sure there's plenty in, in the world who would love to hear the Proverbs without sure. Christ. Yeah, sure. And it's quite honestly... Me. Um, it, it's a joy to preach Christ. Yeah. Mm. I don't want to preach less than him. Yeah. I have nothing to add. Okay. I, I didn't think so. Yeah. Um, <laughs> Once again. I think, oh, um, I think Dr. Hughes and I handled that. Yeah, thank, thank you, Carl. Yeah. <laughs> okay, so... We, we really are friends, by the way. <laughs> yeah. That's why we're sitting as far away from each other. <laughs> <laughs> All right, outside of ministerial positions, where are Christians trained in theology and biblical studies needed most? I say behind a panel at a preaching conference. <laughs> yeah. I'm just a housewife. Yeah. <laughs> right, right. <laughs> I'd say everywhere. Yep. I don't think, uh, I don't think any Christian is, is made worse by knowing more about the Bible and, and more theology. Yeah. That doesn't mean if you know a lot of Bible and a lot of theology, you're necessarily better in many ways than, than people who, who don't know as much as you, but I don't think it ever harms a Christian to mm-hmm. know as much about Christ and theology as they possibly can. And I, I find it hard to imagine any Christian in any earthly calling not being better in that earthly calling. Amen. It's good. Even fetching so, coffee? Even, which is why we really brought Amy on, because she fetches <laughs> great coffee. I was waiting coffee. for you to say that. <laughs> yes. Yeah. So. yeah, this isn't going to fill itself, Amy. Yeah. You could, um... so. <laughs> Am I making you uncomfortable? No. <laughs> no. You know, this I is one of, my nunchucks. This is one of the few institutions of higher education where you could make that joke and not be escorted from the campus <laughs> yeah. by security That's straight true. away. That's true. Uh, could I just uh, interject in there uh, a thought along that line? 
you don't have a biblical ministry if it's just the Bible preached from the pulpit. Mm. A biblical ministry has got to be from top to bottom. For children, as soon as you can teach them. For junior age, as soon as you can teach them. For junior high and high school. And if the Bible is not at the center, and you know, we've all talked about moralistic Sunday school lessons and all of that, but I think that your, your children's workers need to be theologically informed and know what they're doing theologically, and I'm sure that Amy would agree with that. And so to have a biblical ministry, it needs to be everywhere. Well, and what we believe about God affects our everyday decisions. So um, it's important for everyone to know God rightly. And I think with, you know, if you're training to be a pastor or a professor, you know, what you truly want is for what you're preaching, what you're teaching, to trickle down to the housewives, mm -hmm. to the engineers, to the school teacher, to the children. Mm -hmm. And so if you really believe that that's important, then what you're studying at school is important for every single vocation in life. And Amy, I know with your book, I know just the title alone resonated with a lot of the women in the church I serve uh, because that, it resonated with them because I think they see in that, uh, it captures the imagination to say, so in my daily work that can sometimes be a, a drudgery, yeah. mm -hmm. um, I can and should be someone who thinks deeply about God. That's very, very helpful. Yes. Yeah. Amen. That's the way that you do your daily work. I truly believe that. Amen. Okay, so would you each discuss your family worship, the time of day, singing, etc.? No. <laughs> Carl? <laughs> I, I, I have to say, I, I'm sort of with Todd in terms of family stuff is quite private and... Uh, so in terms of detail, I would say probably not. But I would say there are certain, I, I mean, I think family worship has to, to an extent, be, be tailored around individual families. Families are around together at different times during the day. I would say there are certain principles that, that should be observed in family worship. Uh, obviously, reading of scripture and prayer would be one. Uh, explanation of, of scripture as and, as and when necessary. Uh, and, and when that question came up, I was reminded, I, on, on Monday night, I, I went up to New York to hear uh, the Roman Catholic Archbishop of Philadelphia, Charles Chaput, give uh, the Erasmus Lecture. And setting aside confessional and theological differences, uh, he was speaking on, on the secularization of, of America, and also he talked about the loss of young people in the Roman Catholic Church. And I was struck by something he said that I think applies directly to Protestantism. He said, uh, a lot of people say that the church is, using, is losing its people, young people, uh, because they don't care about the church anymore. And he said, I, he said, I don't think that's true. He said, we're losing our young people because their parents never taught them it was important. Now, I have a lot of disagreements with, with Roman Catholics, mm -hmm. but I thought that was an interesting comment, that the church is losing its young people because the parents never taught the children that it was important. And I think that applies across the board. It applies to family worship. It also implies to whether you're in church every Sunday and what priority you demonstrate to your children church has on a Sunday. Uh, you know, if the sun shines out and all their friends are going to the beach, do you decide to skip church for Sunday and take your kids to the beach? In which case, you send the signal to your children that it's not that important. So... Um, 
I sort of, I, I almost begrudge saying I learned something very important on Monday from the Roman Catholic Archbishop <laughs> of Philadelphia, but that struck me, and I think that principle needs to apply to, to things like family worship. Was I always a great and perfect example of that with my own children? Unfortunately not. But that doesn't, my, my failures, my hypocrisy, if you like, doesn't make it less true mm. to mm. say it. Let me ask you a question, Dr. Hughes. Yeah. Connect, I think it's connected to that. Um, our children, the children of pastors, uh, by virtue of the fact that they live in a pastor's home and overhear conversations mm -hmm. between mom and dad, mm -hmm. uh, can get at times a front row seat mm -hmm. to some of the deeper dysfunctions mm -hmm. that occur in the church. Yeah. How do, how, what, what would you say to a young family, husband's a pastor, they've got young kids, what would you yeah. say to them as far as how do, you, how do you cultivate a love for the body of Christ yeah. in a pastor's home? How do you help, how does a pastor help his children navigate when dad is getting beat up or, yeah. or, or those kinds of things? Well, you, you, you tossed me a softball. So, well, uh, happy I to do that. Yeah. Um, when I was going through all the misery that produced liberating ministry from success syndrome, um, and uh, let's put it this way. Uh, I remember Ray Steadman once preached through First and Second Corinthians, and he called it First and Second Californians. And uh, I, I was experiencing that in Orange County, California. I went through some very difficult times. But my wife and I decided that we weren't going to discuss the church's problems in front of our children. And there was an illustration from Corey Ten Boom's life where she, she hears a, uh, a sexually freighted phrase. She's a, a little girl. And she's getting on the train with her dad, and her dad asks her to pick up the suitcase. She tries to pick it up, and it's too heavy for her. And he said, Corey, someday I'll tell you what it is, but right now I need to carry that for you. There are things that are too heavy for children to carry. They, they can't, yeah, it's a great illustration, right at the end of her book, and at the hiding place. And we, we understood that, and we knew that illustration, and so we didn't discuss those things at the table. And it was fascinating that when I left that church in California, went to college church, and everything just went well, when my kids were actually in their 20s, I told them some of the stories that precipitated this, and they couldn't believe it. And they said, well, that was the good church, Dad. You know, that was when we thought it was really church. We don't think college church is anything. That was the real church. And um, you see, I, I actually think, we, by God's grace, as young as we were, we were very, very wise. There are some things that children just can't yeah. hear and don't need to hear and need right. to be carried by their parents. And they don't need to hear somebody being dissected, some enemy right. but being dissected or eaten by mother and dad. Yeah, so it's good. It's good. Okay, so this one is for the mortification of spin team. Now that you have your own exclusive web platform, having reached the pinnacle of celebrity evangelicalism, <laughs> what is the view like from the top? <laughs> P.S. Will you sign my Bible? I'm a big fan. 
uh, which of the three of us has a coffee mug? Um, <laughs> well, I'd say that the view from the top is fantastic. Yeah. Everybody looks very small. Uh, and uh, if you want me to sign your Bible, you'll need to speak to one of my agents and they will book an appointment for you. I would have to say no offense, but since I'm on a podcast that originated advertising for the, the balding and uh -huh. overweight and bitter, yeah. pretty much I see a lot of shiny heads. And <laughs> we gave a voice to the balding middle-aged man. Yeah, yeah. We, that was yeah, our constituency. Yeah. We, we cater to a very, very select crowd. And, uh, um, you know, I, I, I like to say, you know, at, at the church I serve, we have two morning services. They're both identical. They're, they're tailored for a niche that is 47-year-old, balding, cynical men. And uh, that's all the music is tailored to that group, and I'm very happy um, in that. And so uh, I, I, I think if we can continue to reach uh, that, that group and have gospel-centered baldness and gospel-centered 47-year-old. Uh, I represent the people with hair. <laughs> yeah, well. I care about hair. Every square inch of my head will soon be bald. Yes, yes, yes. That's criterion terminology. Mm -hmm, so. mm -hmm. Which means God will know less and less about you. That's true. That's true. <laughs> <laughs> Who says God can't be blessed? <laughs> okay, moving on. Um, this one's a lot more, a lot deeper than the last question. I don't know how we transition here, but. Um, how can I get in the pulpit when I am so sinful? Well, I'll start. Please do. <laughs> we are all sinful. So sinful. Now, I don't, I don't know what's behind that question. Uh, so sinful, does that mean... Uh, does, that, does that mean uh, adultery? Does it mean uh, a, a circus parade of pornography running through your mind? Uh, does it mean that you haven't forgiven someone? I mean, I, so I don't know what that is. Um, I, think, I think you always have, it, it's, it was uh, William Beveridge, the Puritan, said that, uh, uh, he said, when I come to the Lord's table, I sin. He's talking about the lack of perfectionism. Um, he says, even when I confess my sins, my confession needs to be repented of. I never confess as deep and well as I ought. So I mean, I think we understand who we are as sinners. Um, certainly in the former case, uh, fornication, adultery, no. But I would say that if you, if you're, if you have a riot running through your mind all the time that you, you need to have help before you step into the pulpit. But it's to have uh, hatreds recur, bad thoughts recur, confess them, go ahead. Uh, as long as you're confessed and pure, mm -hmm. I mean confessed yeah. before the Lord. I, maybe I'm not, maybe I don't want to leave some door open for some mis mistake in what I'm saying, so maybe you guys can help me. A well, I, I would agree with you. So long as we're not talking about disqualifying sins, the fact is we step into the pulpit as people who are in the middle of our sanctification every Lord's Day. And um, I spend time praying when I'm going to bed on Saturday nights, but I, I wake up Sunday morning again feeling the weight of my frailty and my fallenness and my sin. 
Um, I'm muttering under my breath prayers as I'm walking up the steps to preach. Um, and and, and I, I don't know that I would be helped if I didn't feel that. Um, I, I think I'm helped by the fact that I'm aware of my brokenness every Sunday morning. Yeah, yeah. yeah I would simply comment that Paul's, Paul's qualifications for overseers, you know, he, do, he isn't demanding perfection. He's not demanding sinless perfection, that's quite obvious. The, the standard's pretty high. Uh, and, and one of the keys, I think, is uh, of good reputation, good reputation with those outside. So we're not talking about a man who never sins, but we're talking about a man who is not scandalous, either in private or, yeah. or in public there. But I, again, appreciate what you two have said about the, the awareness of one's own sin should make one more dependent upon God's grace as one goes into the pulpit. John Bunyan would be an extreme example. I mean, he writes in Grace Abounding that he would be quaking and fearing the fires of hell as he walks up the steps. Then he gets into the pulpit and he calms down and he preaches and he comes out of the pulpit and as he's coming back down, he feels all of the angst and the fear coming back in. He's an extreme example and I think that there was, I would go as far as say there's something unhealthy in some ways about that, but I do think the, a feeling of inadequacy and dependence is, is important. Very important. Yeah. I think this is um, something that gives you what I've heard you refer to as the, the common touch. Is that what you were calling it? The, to be able to connect yeah. with the congregants. Because, I mean, I always say the devil works hardest in my house on su Sunday morning. Yeah. And I'm sure, like any married woman out there, can um, identify, especially if you have children, it is like every obstacle that can possibly get in the way of your joy in preparing for worship <laughs> and just getting out the door on time, you know? Doesn't matter how hard you prepare on Saturday night. And so here I find myself like yelling at the kids and my, you know, snickering at my husband about something. And then I get in the car and I think, how dare I? You know, I'm, I'm going to, to sit under the word of God right now. And I, I sound awful. Yeah. And so, I mean, I believe a lot of the congregants probably go through those same feelings on their way to worship you know, how am I worthy to approach the holy God and worship as a sinner? And um, that's why it's so important, too, for us to hear Christ in the Proverbs. If I come to church like that and I just hear, do this, do this, mm -hmm. do this, I'm in total despair because I don't measure up to those things. Right. So you can identify with everyone else, and, and Christ clearly identified with us and his sufferings, although without sin. Let, let, let me ask, ask you a question, Dr. Hughes. So mm -hmm. uh, Carl and I are um, uh, very vulnerable, sensitive men who, who like to talk a great deal about our feelings. Um, we listen to Barry White records. Yes, we do. Answer. Yes, we do. Um, in all seriousness, um, what, what do you share what wisdom would you give as far as a pastor sharing sin from the pulpit? Um, how specific should a preacher get and how uh, guarded should he be? In, in an age where vulnerability is praised as a virtue, yeah. I fear that some pastors say things that could cause people to stumble. Mm -hmm. um, where, where would you draw the line? Well... I, I, I think you, you should use interdirected experience judiciously, mm -hmm. that it, it needs to serve the text. That's mm -hmm. one of the yeah. things. It's not just a gratuitous, 
I want to connect with the people. So it needs to serve the text and the Word of God. Um, but I would, I would, as I was just listening to that, I thought, you could, for instance, you could have had a big blow-up and be really, really angry with someone that week. Mm-hmm. I think recent history, it would be a bad thing to say, you know, I just had a big blow-up with somebody this last week. I told my neighbor to go jump and, or whatever, and, but I repented, and here I am. I'm in the pulpit. I think that's really harmful. Mm. But I do think when there's distance between something like that, then it can be used wisely and judiciously, but not the immediate thing. So everybody's going, oh, he's so real. It just happened this last week, and he, he said this. I, I don't think so. Yeah. So I think it's got to be metered, and I don't think that uh, the people need to know everything that goes through your mind. Right, right. Yeah. All right. Amen. Yeah. Okay, you said reading the Bible, preaching the Bible, it's that simple. So do you think a layman can preach? Well, I I would say this, yes, I'd say yes, a layman can preach, depends on the layman. But one of the ways I would define expository preaching is simply reading the Bible. I mean, if you really think about it, you have to learn to read a text in its context, uh, understanding the theme of the book, say it's 2 Corinthians, that the, the theme of the book is strength and weakness, to understand the architecture of the book, to see how it fits in all of uh, uh, the whole corpus of Scripture, its intercanonical connections, its connections with people in the past like Moses and Gideon and so on. Um, no, I, th- I think a, a layman can... Uh, can preach. It certainly helps to have the language and have mm-hmm. theological training. But yes, I, I think if you really do read the Bible, mm-hmm. that's the question. Mm-hmm. I would agree with that. Carl, you disagree, so let's hear it. <laughs> Out with it. <laughs> no, I would, just, I would simply qualify it by saying I think that the regular preaching of the word should be restricted to the ordained office. I agree. Uh, because it has to be done competently because you're playing with people's souls. Right. Yeah. So it's not, it's not that in certain extraordinary situations or even, you know, one of my criticisms of, uh, of my own, I, I've written this, of, 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 on a really strict reading of my own denomination's book of church order, People shouldn't be getting to the pulpit until they're licensed to preach, which strikes me as a nonsense because you can't license somebody to preach until you know they can preach. Mm-hmm. Where are they going to preach if they've got nowhere to preach? Yeah. So I, I do think there is a place in that context as well for, for lay preaching. Mm-hmm. But I would be, be more inclined to, to use lay preaching as a means of testing whether somebody has a gift. And if they don't have the gift, yeah. stop them doing it. Yep. If they do have the gift, move them into a formal regulated ministry capacity. So that would be my one small qualification. And and one of the great things you can do when you have lay preachers is you vet them anyway Mm. so that your ordained Mm. uh, staff sits down with them, goes over what they have laid out and what they're doing. So that can be uh, very much a win-win. Yeah, yeah. I think this is a challenge for seminaries because uh, you you can graduate you can actually graduate with an MD without ever having preached. If you're the MD of pastoral, you preach just a, a very few times in a, a, a very false preaching environment. 
Uh, it is something that when I was dean, you know, Tim and I used to talk about this, not sure that we've ever come up with a really satisfactory seminary model for, for addressing the preaching issue. And I suspect, sad to say, we, we probably have many men ordained who can't preach. Uh, and, and because nobody's had the heart to tell them or because presbyteries see somebody with an MDiv and think that's an imprimatur that right. this person can preach. Well, no, it's, it's the imprimatur that their check's cleared and they passed all the exams, <laughs> yeah, which is, which is yeah. slightly different. So I, I think this is a, a whole host of questions one could raise here. And we are always glad that the check's clear, yeah. I have to say. <laughs> but, uh, don't belittle that. Um, <laughs> <laughs> and, and it doesn't, I would say it, it doesn't hurt if you have an English accent either. No. Because you can basically read the phone book and we're going to be moved. We are. Yeah. So. We are adding a section to the MDiv curriculum here where I will teach people to speak proper English, which will raise the orthodoxy of their sermons uh, no end. Um. Well, I mean, you think of that rare occasion too, or like a Spurgeon's conversion story, that he's just, you know, walking mm -hmm. in a snowstorm and into the church and the the regular pastor couldn't make it, and so a faithful layman got up and preached. Um, oh, Isaiah forty-five twelve. Exactly. Yeah. Look to me and be saved. Yep. Look to me. Yep. And that's his conversion. So I mean, just you know, in those rare moments, to have somebody to be willing to be faithful to the word of God and preach straight from Scripture and the power of God's word was yeah. you blessed him by yeah. it. Yeah. Yeah, that's good. So. There, Carl. Um, in your face. <laughs> you and your OPC ways. Hey, we have many people here today. <laughs> there are dozens of us. Dozens. Okay, this is a good one. I want to hear your answers to this one. My church only serves grape juice for communion. Is that really wine? Does that break the regulative principle? Well, I could. We've just gone through this. Uh, we've just moved to having from ha just having grape juice, having grape juice and wine at Cornerstone, because two of my more awkward elders made an issue of it. One of whom is sitting at the back there. Uh, <laughs> uh, I think. Uh, I mean, my comment would be. Uh, I'd just make a couple of comments. To me, it's a matter of comparative indifference. Uh, I, it's not a hill that I would be willing to die on, one way or the other. Um, I can see arguments going both ways. The way we made the transition was I did speak to those in the congregation that I knew struggled with alcohol to make sure that this change was not going to offend them or cause any trouble for them in their own struggle with, with alcohol issues. Interesting enough, if you, if you look at the, uh, I think I'm right in saying, uh, reading a book on this just last week, if you look at the literature of the, of the early church in the immediate post-apostolic period, the, the liturgical discussion of the Lord's Supper typically focuses upon the cup rather than the contents of the cup. And there are actually even references to water being in the cup because the, the Lord's Supper, it's the meal context rather than the elements that are the interest. So I just throw that out to say I, I wonder if the, if the discussion represents a shift in focus on the Lord's Supper anyway that perhaps would need to be reflected on uh, at, at, at some point. But to me it's a matter indifferent if you're having grape juice uh, I think grape juice, the color of it, captures some of the symbolism of blood, obviously, in a way that water would not right. do. But uh, to me, grape juice or wine, I don't think you're sinning either way. And what I would say is if you know, don't split your church over this issue. Mm -hmm. It's not worth splitting mm -hmm. a church over yeah. the issue either way. Yeah. Yeah. I'm, um, I'm PCA, so we use a salad bar 
And <laughs> at Disney World, at Disney World, at General Assembly, yes. Uh, we go to Sioux City, Iowa, the PCA go to Disney World. That tells you all you need to know, good and bad. So. Sorry, Todd, you were saying. <laughs> I agree with you. You shouldn't split your church over it. I think that there's, we, we use grape juice. I, I think that there's something um, about the, uh, the bitterness of wine that is helpful, yeah, but, but not something I would go to a hill on. What was, what was the practice at college church? College church, we had grape juice. You got to look at the whole wheat in context over the years. Sure. It would just been yeah. too much. Right. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So you had juice with the Lord's Supper, and then those who consented would go out back afterwards for wine and cigars. That's right. Okay. That's right. <laughs> there are plenty of them. So. There's a difference between like a sip of sweet grape juice mm -hmm. and then you know having that little Makes bit of bitterness more. in yeah. the wine. Yeah. But we had the, I mean we had this discussion on session, and you know for every said, so, well, the wine, the bitterness of the wine reflects the bitterness of Christ's suffering. Well, the sweetness of the grape juice reflects right. the sweetness of the gospel. Right. It, it, it's, it's, yeah. it's tit for tat to, yeah. some, to yeah. some extent. Yeah. Well, once uh, our elders accidentally bought diet grape juice. Oh, I thought you were going to say <laughs> diet wine. And none of us knew. And so when we took the cup, we were like, oh. That definitely sent a different message. It was an accident. But it was diet communion. <laughs> okay, so some reform churches require that the catechism is preached every Lord's Day in one service. What are your thoughts on that? I, 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 I guess that the question is referring probably to the, the continental Dutch-German tradition where typically the Heidelberg Catechism would be preached on in the afternoon or the evening service. Um, I, I like that idea to an extent. Um, I, mean, I, I think part of the problem in, in the United States is the loss of the evening service really cuts down your option for doing that because you want to preach. I think the, your primary focus must be preaching through the Bible. And if you're only meeting once on a Sunday, then preaching through the Bible has to be your absolute priority. On the other hand, I do think that the need for pastors to preach the whole counsel of God. This came up, I was first challenged by this when I was an elder at the Free Church of Scotland in Aberdeen. In Aberdeen, the, the congregation was made up there were some people who were, you know, lived in Aberdeen and were there long term, but a lot of the congregation were either students from the university or people seconded to the oil industry, which is a highly mobile industry. So typically, you know, maybe half of the congregation would be vanishing over a period of three years regularly, which to me raised the question of how does the pastor make sure that he's preached the whole counsel of God to those people during the time that he's got them? And I think if you're just preaching expository sermons going through books of the Bible, uh, that doesn't necessarily get you through the whole counsel of God very rapidly. If you've got people for 20, 25 years, yes. But if you've got somebody for two, maybe three years, you may need a model that supplements that so that there are certain key doctrines that will get addressed that wouldn't get addressed otherwise. And it struck me there that some form of not catechetical preaching, some form of thematic preaching based on catechetical categories might have been a useful way of at least making sure that if you're in our church for two years, you're going to be taught clearly on justification, yeah. clearly on the doctrine of God, clearly on election, yeah. clearly on the communion of the saints. So I would say, I wouldn't want to say you must preach on a catechism, but I think what catechetical preaching got at was something important, and that is if you just preach on a single passage of scripture each Sunday, 
you probably need something to supplement it to give people the, the bigger picture. And we live in a day where people need that bigger picture because they don't know the Bible as thoroughly as they did in days past. It strikes me as bizarre that our solution to people not knowing the word as well as they did 100 years ago is we have less services on a Sunday, shorter services on a Sunday, with less word read and preached on a Sunday. That is a bizarre response mm. to the crisis of, of biblical knowledge. Mm. But it seems to fly. It seems to fly. How, how did you address that over, over the long haul at <clears throat> College Church? Well, we had a couple of things going. One is uh, a large Sunday school and large Sunday school classes where it was taught. We did have evening service, so we could do those kinds of things. And, uh, but I agree, it's what Paul tells the Ephesian elders who you're referring to. The, he, he declared the whole counsel of God. Well, he's only there two years. So he, he couldn't do it by expositing the Sermon on the Mount which would mm -hmm. take two years. So I, I totally agree. I think you've got to look at your context. Mm -hmm. Okay, how did Luther and Calvin differ in their preaching? Oh, those two guys, when I would hear them... Um, <laughs> I'm going to kick that over to Kent. Um. Well, okay. I, I, I will say this, that John Calvin, because he was careful about his Lectio Continua, understood what a whole book was about. He was always building on the context that went before. He did a lot of his lexical study, whereas I, I would say Luther, when you read his sermons, a lot of them are eccentric. They're biblical they're eccentric, um, and some are massively eloquent, and others, you know, he's just, you know, duking out the Pope and with all kinds of words. So, um, I, I mean, Luther is just an amazing genius, but I think that's how they're preaching. You see, different. you see their personalities come come through their preaching for sure. Yeah. Say, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, so, so Calvin would tend to stray away from scatological language, for instance, and uh, re referencing body functions in his sermons, Right. whereas Luther might be warmer to right. those. Right, uh, and I would see the structure of the passage in Calvin. Yeah. It's absolutely yeah. incredible. Yeah. Yeah. The historian? Luther? Well, I'm, I'm a big Luther man, as you know, yes. but uh, I, I would say the difference between them technically is Calvin is a much better exegete. And Calvin has, I think it was Kevin Van Hooser comment somewhere, you know, why is it people read Calvin's commentaries today, when, whereas they don't generally read Luther's commentaries for their commentary material? And, and Kevin Van Hooser's comment was, Calvin had a, a, an uncanny instinctive grasp of the genre of the literature he was dealing with, which I think Luther did not have so much. I, I read Luther's, Luther's sermons in some ways like I read Spurgeon's sermons. I think Luther is a better exegete than Spurgeon, actually, but uh, I think you do not read Spurgeon and you do not read Luther to understand how to exegete the text that they say they're exegeting. Yeah. You read them to, to see the glories of Christ pressed home on the congregation in a powerful way. So I would say I, I read them for Christ. I don't read them for, for exegesis. Yeah, that's good. Usually, you know, say the right doctrine, but not necessarily from the correct yeah. text. Yeah. I'm putting it. Yeah, that's great. I don't think I've ever heard anyone say Calvin is my homeboy. 
just Luther is my homeboy. Yeah, yeah, Luther seems to be more applicable to that kind of thing. Calvin I, maybe was more uptight. A little bit. Well, to, to speak, to be fair to Calvin, Calvin was very ill for a lot of his adult life, yeah. which does not, you know, it does not make you a happy person, no. if I can no. put it that no. way. No. And he lost his wife, which right. is a deep, deep tragedy. Um, so I was, and, and, he, and he wrote and said very little about himself, didn't he? Whereas Luther said a great yeah. deal about himself. Though the, the ultimate man on that front, I think, is John Owen, hmm. who had 11 children, yeah. 10 of whom died in infancy, one of whom lived to adulthood, got married, came back home because the marriage was unhappy and then died. She mm. predeceased him. And he makes no reference yeah. to his family difficulties anywhere in his writings. There is nothing of his private life there, except there's one, he, he alludes to Job at some point and he makes some comment about the gift of Christ is more valuable to a man than, than even 11 children. Mm. Oh and my. I think there's just mm. that tiny glimpse through the curtain there at the, 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 the tragedy of, of the man's life. So that's not an answer to the question, but I like telling that story. I don't think that's that good. John Owen could survive in this culture, though, with the technology yeah, well, we have. Well, the reason why he the... wasn't effective is that he was not vulnerable. Yeah. And so... I don't know. I think people would dig into his life a little bit more now and get a little more nosy on him. But... He was busted for having illegal firearms in his uh, attic at one yeah. point. Um, so he was, in, he was connected with some interesting people, uh, I think. Interesting. I, I read a biography of Calvin that listed 29 ailments that he had. Oh. Stickelberger's biography. Wow. 29 ailments. Oh. I wonder how many that would translate into with our recent medical abilities. I don't know. <laughs> all kinds to... of digestive problems. Yeah. 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 Okay, I think we probably have time for like one more question. Um, what is the role for women on the mission field who have MDiv degrees? Well, I, I would say, <laughs> if you have a Don't high... Don't say fetch the coffee. <laughs> yeah. Other than fetching the coffee. Um, I think if you have a high view of ordained office, then we, we can say what women can't do on the mission field. I don't think they can preach in the public worship of the church, and I don't think they can administer the sacraments. But that's only two things. There's a lot of other things out there that women can do. I mean, I can't list them all now, but I would say if you, if you have... It's one of those questions where I think if you have a good, high ecclesiology, it's liberating. Because what can't women do? They can't, on Sunday morning, stand up in a pulpit and preach. They can't administer the Lord's Supper. They can't baptize people. Uh, they're not going to be elected to, to the eldership. But most guys aren't going to do that either. Right. And there are right. men out on the mission field uh, with MDivs who are not ordained people. So I would say... Without answering the question in detail, I would say that the starting point is ecclesiology. The starting point is thinking about ordained office, uh, how that both restricts certain things but also liberates in other areas. Well said. That's exactly what I was going to say. <laughs> I thought so. so. <laughs> Amazing. Amy, you're a, I'm you're a, a woman. woman. You're a woman. Yeah. What do you think? Uh, well, I mean, I think this has... It's a similar to the earlier question. Every woman should be excited about good theology, about learning all they can. So um, if you have the opportunity to get your MDiv, that's wonderful. I think that can help you in the mission field for sure, especially in the culture we have now where there's um, all kinds of theological debate going on, weak theology in, in missions, um, and all the way down to raising children or in any other career a woman 
has. So I think that it would help immensely, and I agree with what you said, that you, know, you start with the ecclesiology of it, but after that, there's just so much freedom, and yep. what a joy it would be to have that. So how do we close this thing out? Dr. Hughes, typically how we close out a program like this is we have our guest just impromptu sing a song. <laughs> and... Which one did you choose, Tom, today? <laughs> we, don't, we don't do that. Um... <laughs> I was thinking about Mexico by James Taylor. <laughs> oh, hey. I Absolutely. Yeah. We'll, we'll, we'll hang around for that. Right. Um, What's in this, guy? Um, <laughs> uh, uh, we're really glad that you uh, uh, took a risk and sat up at a table in front of people with us. Um, you raised um, our status. I don't know what we did to yours. Um, <laughs> but uh, um, I think uh, I, I love to, to listen to pastors who have a long track record of faithfulness, talk about their ministry, about their life, about preaching. And um, I've been helped uh, by hearing you, and we're really, really glad that, uh, that you gave us the opportunity to ask you questions and to pick your brain about life and ministry. So thank you. Very kind, thank you. Let's say thanks to the panel. Thanks for listening to Mortification of Spin, a podcast of the Alliance of Confessing Evangelicals. The Alliance is a coalition of pastors, scholars, and churchmen who hold to the historical creeds and confessions of the Reformed faith and who proclaim biblical doctrine in order to foster a Reformed awakening in today's church. Mortification of Spin has been on the air for two years, and to celebrate, the Alliance would like to give a few listeners the entire second season. Go to our website, mortificationofspin.org, to enter the giveaway. Next week, the team reflects on the life and work of contemporary theologian Thomas Oden. If you're unfamiliar with Thomas Oden, he's been around for most of the 20th century. He's been a public intellectual and theologian, professor and writer, and has contributed a great deal within the broader context of evangelicalism. These stories that you're telling, Todd, and sharing, you don't expect that to be on the next page, but it's one after the other after the other. All that and more next week. Thanks for listening. Is the Alliance bringing in lunch today, or, you know? <laughs> Could be dinner the way we go. <laughs>